This episode is brought to you by the Women's Network. Difficult things can happen and then you wake up and you're still here and you decide what happens next. You still have the ability to decide what happens next. And you put one foot in front of the other and you keep going. I think that that's the thing to remember that just because you fail doesn't mean that it's the end of the game. And welcome back to another episode of Redefining Ambition. I'm your co-host, Jamie Vinnick, founder and president of the Women's Network. And we have a really great episode for you today. I'm excited for you to get to know our next guest, Sheila Marmon, founder and CEO of Mirror Digital, a media company focused on helping large established brands reach multicultural consumers through digital advertising platforms. Sheila has a really interesting background, having worked in investment banking, multimedia strategy, and now pursuing an entrepreneurial career. Two Ivy League degrees under her belt and a wealth of experience in both finance and media was not enough to alleviate many of the difficulties associated with raising venture capital. Sheila opens up about some of the struggles associated with raising capital as a woman of color and shares more detail about risk-taking, mentorship, and the importance of casting a wide network. Enjoy the episode, everyone, and make sure to connect with us on Instagram at redefiningambition and at thewomens.network. Welcome to Redefining Ambition. So excited to have you on the pod. Thank you for having me. Yes, and thank you for coming on. Sheila is incredibly inspiring. You've had a really tremendous career path. We're going to get into that. You have worked in a variety of different capacities. You are currently working at your own company that you founded, founder and CEO of uh, a company I'm really excited that you're going to share more about. So um, I think that it's really important the listeners understand more about who you are and your background before getting into uh, your career and talking more about the need for Mirror Digital. To begin, you grew up uh, in on the south side of LA and talk to us a little bit about um, your early upbringing and how that influenced ultimately your decision to attend Princeton. Sure. So um, I'll take it a little step by step. I'll just start with introducing myself. Thank you, Jamie, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I am Sheila Marmon, the founder of Mirror Digital. We're a digital media company out of Los Angeles. And Los Angeles is where I had my humble beginnings. So going back to your question, um, I grew up in uh, South Central Los Angeles, which has now been rebranded South LA. And it is a community that um, is uh, primarily people of color and is um, considered an under-resourced community just in terms of um, economic development, school performance, you know, healthcare access, etc. And so uh, coming from a community like that, um, and being able to now be a founder in digital in the digital media and technology space, the journey has been a winding and um, rewarding one. So uh, it all started with my family. And even though we might have been what was considered um, economically poor, we really had a rich and 
uh, amazing family environment. So um, I had a very, very encouraging mother who encouraged me to take risks, um, pushed me to always try new things, really supported my um, appetite for learning and my curiosity, um, amazing grandparents, um, aunts, uncles. I have 21 cousins on my mother's side of the family, 21 first cousins. So um, just really lots of community and lots of love. And from that really strong environment, um, I was able to have a really strong sense of self and start to feel like I had a place in the world and that um, I could chart my own course. You were quoted as saying that you never saw someone who looked like you, who went off to a four-year college, nonetheless, Princeton. And I'm sure that there were both people encouraging you to apply and to reach for higher education. And I'm sure there are also those who were doubting that potential success from happening and discouraging you from even applying. How were you able to overcome the critics and the doubters and those who were not encouraging you to reach for these big, audacious, ambitious uh, endeavors and goals? And how, if anything, did that inspire you to go off to school with a limited community of people you could rely on who also experienced something similar? Sure. So I'll say, you know, the key to my journey and what has led to my fulfillment has really been this notion of adopting unconventional wisdom. And what I mean by that is you really have to look inward to figure out what you think is for you. And you can't listen to the noise uh, in the environment and kind of what has been in the past or uh, what the expectations are of others. Uh, so I think it's really important as young women are thinking about what they want to achieve, that they spend a lot of time on self-reflection and know that the opportunities are boundless. And so the way I found myself from South Central LA to Princeton, um, I went to boarding school. So there was a program called A Better Chance that identified academically talented students of color to go to top prep schools. And I had the opportunity to go to a top college prep school. And from there, my uh, sense of possibilities were expanded dramatically. So just getting a chance to see um, so much more beyond what I had grown up around in Los Angeles, meeting so many different types of people, um, being exposed to new academic opportunities, new extracurricular opportunities. Uh, so really being pushed to achieve at the highest levels academically, um, being able to learn Spanish, going hiking uh, along the Kern River engaging in community service activities um, in the local community. So there's a host of things that I was exposed to uh, that just let, let me see more. And, and again, allowed me to feel my sense of self and the, a sense of being able to accomplish 
um, my dreams and my goals. And then the decision to go to Princeton happened when, uh, you know, so I was exposed to so many more opportunities. And so the trick there is saying, yes, when you get an opportunity, um, go for it, try it. Uh, <laughs> even with uh, the decision to go to boarding school, uh, as you mentioned, no one in my family had gone to college. I was the first in my family to go to college. So no one had even heard of boarding school. And as I really pined over that decision, like, should I go away to school and leave my family, leave my community, leave everything that I know and love? Um, you know, my mother sat me down and she said, you know what? You don't know what it's like there. And if it's terrible, you can always come home. So in that moment, she crystallized it for me. And so understanding that if boarding school didn't work out for me, I could come home. It really changed my mindset about what opportunities I might take advantage of. Because if it didn't work out, I could always come home. So what new doors could I explore? What new things could I see? And so in applying to college, um, I was looking at every opportunity. I didn't ever feel like something wasn't for me or something wasn't potentially achievable for me. And what really drew me to Princeton was um, I attended a summer enrichment program designed to expose rising high school seniors to uh, opportunities with uh, MBA programs. So looking at how I might uh, build a career based on getting a business school degree. And I did this at Northwestern University in Chicago. And as part of that program, we got to, and it was for, um, it was for, uh, black students. And as part of that program, we went to all the leading black businesses around Chicago to kind of see what business looked like, because it was also, uh, an, an, a notion of getting us broader exposure. And during that tour of different Chicago businesses, I went to, um, our, our, our whole crew went to Aerial Investments and the founder of that firm is John Rogers, who is a Princeton alum and interning there at the time. She wasn't even a full-time hire is, was Melody Hobson. So she was an intern from Princeton University interning for John. I got the chance to meet her. And she's now the president. She was just named the head of the board for Starbucks. And I just saw myself in her. And I just said, wow, uh, she is amazing. She found a successful path at Princeton. And all the schools that I was looking at, it really helped raise Princeton to the top of my list, meeting these amazing um, African-American professionals who are having such an impact in their community with um, what they were doing at Ariel Investments. So many questions about that. Did you meet her as an intern? You met her. I met her when she was an intern oh. and I was in high school. Yeah. So <laughs> she was a student at Princeton uh, and she must have been probably maybe a sophomore going to her junior year because she was a senior when I was a freshman. I think that's right. So wow. yeah, it was wow. fantastic. Great. <laughs> and do you guys know each other well? Do you keep in touch? Um, so, uh, interestingly enough, um, John Rogers has been uh, a mentor of mine and he uh, took an interest in Mirror Digital and um, they're a small investor in the firm. Cool. So he and Melody were uh, have, have been really fantastic as sounding boards as we've grown the company. That is incredible. And 
it goes back to this idea that for so many people, you cannot be what you cannot see. Have you, you're shaking your head. Have you felt that? And has that allowed you to explore possibilities you didn't think were possible prior to the exposure? And, and how important is that in seeing people who look like you holding positions of leadership and of power? Yeah, I, I, I really do think that adage is so important. You can't be what you can't see. And even if you um, are exploring a career opportunity or you're trying something that's never been done before, seeing uh, women and or women of color or people of color who have been innovators, who have done something new, um, is inspiring just, uh, you know, as, as a, as a force to help you feel like you can also achieve. But then more specifically, I think it's also important for young women to, um, look for role models in the career path that they're choosing. So, um, out of, uh, when I first came out of business school, I decided to go to Wall Street. And one of the decisions, one of, you know, part of that decision was some of the dynamic women that I met who were on Wall Street. You know, I'd never thought about Wall Street as a place for me. Um, and as I was exploring different opportunities, I had just seen women who had built phenomenal careers and, uh, it, it was inspiring and it made me feel like more at, at home, um, mm -hmm. looking at those institutions as places for me to continue to, to develop my career path. You mentioned that you didn't know Wall Street was for you and going back to your days in prep school where I'm sure the majority of folks in your class, many of your classmates did not look like you and certainly did not come from the background you came from. How did that inspire and influence your thinking behind the quotes that you've given countless times that I love and resonate with and so many others will as well, which is I belong here. I have a seat at the table. I'm going to own this space and I belong in this room, regardless of whether I'm the first, I am the only, I haven't been here before, I belong. Yeah. And it goes back to, um, you know, what I said at the beginning, this notion of unconventional wisdom. Uh, you know, you can't let people fence you in and tell you what's for you and what's not for you. And so going back to my time in boarding school and, you know, kind of to, to address your question more, more directly, being a young person in that environment, you really build strong relationships and you really love your classmates and it really humanizes everyone. Like you find the commonalities and you find the common ground and you start to say, you know, I can achieve in this environment. And you start to go beyond the stereotypes and the facades and you look at people as individuals. And so once you've done that, that's the lens you start to look at the world. So when I'm looking at other potential environments, Wall Street, you know, very intimidating, you know, who are the people that I meet who work in these institutions and in these organizations? And is there common ground? Is there a connection? And similarly, 
you can go beyond what looks like really big chasms in terms of experience or in terms of worldview when you on a one-to-one -one basis find places that you can connect with another person. That is amazing advice. And I think that a, a big misconception for so many people is this intimidation factor of I'm not going to enter a space regardless of how much or little I know about it because of how it's perceived to me and whether or not I belong. And I think that it has direct relation to fear. And you had touched on fear. I would love to know more about how you've been able to see past and even overcome this feeling of being fearful in going after these very ambitious career goals and opportunities. Yeah. So I think, um, I think people conflate risk and fear mm -hmm. and they think that they're the same thing. And you think trying this new experience, pursuing this new job opportunity, oh, this is so risky. And you think that something really terrible could potentially happen if you were to pursue this. But if you go back to, you know, what my mom told me when I was going to boarding school, if you don't like it, you can always leave. And so when you realize that the worst thing that can happen is really not that bad, you're not really looking at risk, you're confronting fear. And once you've understood that, that it's fear, not risk, then you can start to unpack that and say, why am I afraid? Where, you know, how am I going to find, you know, my armor, you know, get, get, get my, you know, big girl pants on and go out and face this fear and, and move forward. And that's really what we want to inspire young women to do, all women to do. But let's face those fears and let's help each other face those fears, either by sharing a similar experience, providing knowledge or wisdom, or even being that role model, going back to what you said, you can't be what you can't see. Get out, share your story so that other women know that they can do what you've done or something similar to what you've done. Would you consider yourself to have some level of fear or are you fearful even today? Oh, absolutely. You know, deciding to become an entrepreneur is one of the scariest things that you can do. Um, you really go off the guided path and you say, okay, I I'm going to just go out and make it. <laughs> there is there's no, there's no workbook. There is no roadmap. And I think the, the important thing there, um, when you are kind of out there in uncharted waters is finding people who can be sounding boards, mentors, resources to help you on your way so that it can also improve your chances of success, but also help mitigate that fear that you feel. So you know that you're not the only one that's ever felt this way. You're not the only one that's ever gone through this. You know, how do you build community and um, find people that you can share your experiences with uh, so that you know you can make it through? There are so many people who struggle with the concept of, quote, finding a mentor and often, in my opinion, find, quote, find a mentor in ways that uh, discourage the people they're wanting to mentor them from 
doing so uh, by simply even asking if they can be your mentor or using them uh, where they feel used um, and feel like there's no mutual benefits or gains um, from occurring. And I think the misconception is that mentors learn just as much from their mentees as mentees learn from their mentors. It's a, a mutual gain. So I would love to hear your story about how you've been thinking about some of the closest mentors in your life, how you acquired um, a rapport for one another and built a relationship and have been able to maintain that relationship in an authentic way. Absolutely. Um, So I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about mentoring being a two-way street, but, you know, and then also with this fear of, asking someone to be your mentor. I have never asked anyone to be my mentor. You know, these are relationships um, just like any other. And so you want to um, identify people who you feel could be beneficial in your life and that you feel like you can benefit and then just invest in that relationship like you would any other relationship. So none of my mentors, you know, walk around with a I'm Sheila's mentor t-shirt. You know, there's no kind of formal mentorship uh, program. It's just folks that I know that I can call in a, in a pinch um, if I have a tough question, if I need help with something. And then similarly, uh, I'm always on the lookout for how I can be a resource for them. Um, whether that's through an introduction, you know, I'm, I have the finger on my pulse of new digital media and lots of new advertising technology. So what information might I share that can help them grow their business? It's always just being mindful of how not only can you be, um, a a recipient of information, but what can you also share in terms of your specific knowledge base? It's very interesting. It is a two-way street and, I love that it's something that you invest in over time. It doesn't happen overnight. And there are so many folks, especially those in college, who have it in their heads that they have to find someone overnight to fill that role. And I love what you mentioned, that it's something that you develop over time and it takes years to invest in. So I love that you shared that. And I also want to hear more about this unchartered territory that you entered since founding Mirror Digital. First of all, what is Mirror Digital and where did the inspiration come from? Mirror Digital is a digital media company. We focus on helping um, large brands, mostly Fortune 500 brands, um, reach multicultural consumers on digital ad platforms. So we have a network of very targeted digital publishers, uh, and we have a network of social influencers, and we have um, what's called an automated media marketplace. So all of these things are basically advertising vehicles for, for large companies. And um, our Our area of expertise is helping them reach Asian, Black, and Latinx consumers uh, so that they can um, deliver targeted messages, uh, grow their businesses, and form um, unique and authentic bonds with these different communities. Now, what uh, initially piqued my interest here is that I I saw a gap in the marketplace. Um, I had been, so after investment banking, I I was a media banker, uh, so I was 
um, serving as an investment banker for a number of global publishers, you know, some of the biggest brands uh, in the world. And, um, and then I went to actually work for one. So I said, okay, I don't want to be a banker. I actually want to do this. I want to get my hands dirty and run a business in this space. Um, so I went to work for a large integrated media conglomerate in their publishing division. And during my time there, I was working with the biggest brands in publishing, you know, the largest magazines in the world. I was helping them look at new revenue opportunities for their brands across digital, across new product lines. And then I was also launching multicultural brands for this big conglomerate. And what I was finding is that the conversations were either about digital on one hand or about multicultural on the other hand, and they were never intersecting. So there was just this blind spot about the fact that people of color um, are on digital platforms and that we need to be thinking about how to reach audiences there and how to cultivate audiences there. And that's really what sparked the desire to launch Mirror Digital. Why do you think that is? Why have for so long people segregated digital from trying to target another audience? And I want you to speak more about why you believe so many people have come to you and said, this is such a niche audience when in actuality, it represents over 40% of the U.S. consumer population. 40%. Yes. So um, I think that I think that there, a lot has changed um, in the in the last few years, and particularly over the course of this last year, with a lot of the movement around social justice. I think that um, business leaders and business communities, and you know, our our country at large, are thinking a lot more about diverse audiences, about the experiences of diverse consumers. When you think about when I launched Mirror Digital, um, it was eight years ago. So we were in a really different place in terms of the overall market. So you just think the iPhone had just launched, like the very first one. So yeah, so it was a long time ago. You know, they, there was no Instagram. <laughs> no, oh my gosh. <laughs> so, so the, the digital landscape moves so fast. And I think that. People, you know, leadership in my last company and leadership, I think, in a lot of media companies think about the audiences that are most familiar to them. Uh, and until we have leadership that reflects the, the diversity of who we really are as a country, you're going to have people who think of multicultural markets as a niche because they don't know that number. You know, you said for, you know, over 40%. Some people say 40, some people say 41, some people say 42, but we know it's over 40% of the U.S. market is people of color. And unless you know that, you know, not only here in your head, but here in your heart and you really see that and you really have experienced that and knows what that, know what that means for your business. It's hard to not do what you've always done. So I think large corporations are, are, are you know, kind of turning the ship slowly and um, asking more questions about this market, thinking about being more inclusive and um, inviting partners like me to the table to help them think about how to grow their businesses with these segments. So it's encouraging. It is encouraging. This past year has been eye-opening for so many companies. And you're right, they are beginning to turn a ship. It's extremely important and it is, it's something that you recognized a decade ago, if not more than that. So 
since starting the company, what has this led to? What is the supposed outcome that this would allow um, when companies come to you and say, I want to use your services. I want to increase our reach to a more diverse audience. Why, why are they coming to you versus even, you know, figuring that out internally and why to so many people, why is this important to talk about? Yeah, well, it's important on a couple of levels. So, um, you know, putting on my business person hat, you know, as an MBA and kind of a, you know, an entrepreneur, um, the business case is undeniable. If you want to grow your business in the United States, you have to have a multicultural strategy, period. Um, this is not a niche market and it's driving all the growth, um, in, in our economy. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, it, you would be remiss if you were not thinking about how to authentically speak and connect to multicultural consumers. So that is something that um, I think businesses across the board need to be thinking about just in terms of their own bottom line. So that's the business case. Now, the other, I would call uh, ethical case is that you want to be inclusive of all communities and all consumers. So how do you think about really being inclusive um, of diverse groups across the board and being intentional about that and being intentional about including groups that have historically been excluded is really important. And so I think you have both of those factors at work that make it compelling to be thinking about talking to, reaching, and growing a relationship with with multicultural markets. The year of 2020 can be defined in so many ways. <laughs> That's an understatement. There was a, a movement this year that has rocked industries. Take out the pandemic. I mean, the social movement that um, has ignited and sparked and reinvigorated this energy that it is so important to have a diverse range of voices at the table and to reach diverse audiences. How has this year impacted industries in thinking about how they can further diversify their workforces and their audiences? And what are you most hopeful for? I think that different people are different places, depending on what their goals are, what their experience is, what the culture of their organizations are. So we're certainly not in a place where it's all, you know, kumbaya, let's hold hands and walk into the sunset together. I do think that lots of businesses have felt compelled to make a statement about being inclusive and um, then the importance of that to their organization. And now it's time to see who really puts action and investment behind those statements. That's what I'll be looking for. I think that's what a lot of stakeholders uh, will be looking for to know that corporations and their commitment to social justice, to equity, diversity, and inclusion, that these things are not just performative, but that they actually have some teeth in the policies and in the change that's being affected both inside their organizations and outside of their organizations. You also touched on representation in positions of power on boards and the importance and significance of that. 
we know that minority owned and women owned and founded companies are severely underfunded. You know, there is $85 billion in VC funding in, I believe, 2017. And about 2.3 to 2.2% of that funding went to female-founded companies. And of that 2.2 percentage, it trickles down. Much smaller number went to women of color-founded companies. Yes, it's a huge issue. You have successfully raised funds. You also have a network of other women, I'm sure, who have are running their own companies and have successfully raised money. Why is this still the case? And 2.2% is ridiculous. And what needs to happen in order to see that number shift? Yes, it's dire. So women have raised 2.2% of funds. Black and Latinx founders collectively raise about 2.6%. And Black and Latinx female founders, it's about 0.64%. So of that 26 uh, about 0.6 is women and that, and then 2% to the men. So the numbers are dire across the board, you know, rounding errors essentially. And I'll say my fundraising experience was, was quite difficult. I raised uh, money, a pre-seed round in 2013 and going and speaking to a lot of the traditional angel investors, I would get to the final round of consideration. And then for some reason, it, you know, there was, it was always a no. And my collective networks had to come to the table to help get me off the ground in terms of funding. So I had backing from my Harvard Business School network in terms of people of color and Harvard Business School angels. I had backing from my Princeton networks. I mentioned John Rogers and Melody Hobson being supportive, as well as uh, from Princeton, my roommates, my college roommates set up an LLC to fund me. I had to tap into professional networks. So, you know, when I was a banker at Morgan Stanley, some of my colleagues from Morgan Stanley came in to support me. So it really, you know, when I say it takes a village, it took a village to get me to the very minimum threshold to, to be able to raise some sort of funding. And it was the hardest thing that I did. And I decided that moving forward, it would be easier to drive revenue from customers. And that is what I continued to do. So I moved off of that traditional VC path and moved into a more bootstrapping small business mode because the funding environment just wasn't that hospitable. I would say that 2013, fast forward to 2020, the environment is very different. You know, we didn't have women of color raising more than a million dollars. And now that is becoming more and more of an occurrence. It's still not common. We're still counting. We still haven't made it to a hundred black women who've raised a million dollars, which if you can believe that it's crazy. But there are now conversations. There are funds focused on these groups. There are accelerators focused on these groups. And there's a community, which I think really is helping people connect the dots. And that's so important. Communities of female founders, communities of founders of color that are helping people get over that hurdle. You had two Ivy League degrees under your belt. You're an investment banker and it still wasn't enough. And I'm really hopeful as well to see that the landscape is beginning to change 
and that more representation is going to be on these boards and it's a conversation people are now having in boardrooms, in the C-suite, at positions of power. So that's very encouraging to hear. And I want to also hear your perspective on overcoming defeat. That was, in your words, one of the hardest things you ever had to do was raise money. I'm sure another extremely difficult thing to do is to successfully run a startup, now a company. What have you learned about yourself in the face of rejection and failure and defeat? And how have you been able to take those learning lessons and experiences and better your own self? My biggest failure or defeat was really the first company I launched failed like done, kaput. And then I had to make a decision about what I was going to do next. Was I going to go back to corporate America and pursue a more traditional career path? Or was I going to try again? And I decided to try again and to launch Mirror Digital and have been able to successfully grow the firm. And what I learned in you know what was really i would say a very challenging time both professionally and personally is that the worst thing can happen and you're still here <laughs> so you know bad things really bad difficult things can happen and then you wake up and you're still here and you decide what happens next you still have the ability to decide what happens next. And you put one foot in front of the other and you keep going. I think that that's the thing to remember that just because you fail doesn't mean that it's the end of the game. I love that so much. Oh, if a young woman or a woman of color came to you and said, I just graduated from college. I don't know what I want to do with my life. Uh, I am ambitious. I have a great degree under my belt. I don't know where to look and I'm feeling extremely down and defeated. What would you tell her? Kind of going back to the beginning, that answer is different for everyone. And at the beginning, when we first started talking, I said that, you know, unconventional thinking really led to my fulfillment in life. And I really use that word fulfillment intentionally because when you say success, there's this preconceived notion of what success is supposed to be. And success doesn't look the same for everyone. So what I would say to that young woman is don't think about the path that you're supposed to be on, what the next step is supposed to be. Think about what's going to fulfill you. What are your dreams? What are your aspirations? Where do you want to make a difference in your life? It is an answer that's going to be as varied as there are individuals. And I would go back to what we were talking about, looking at risk versus fear and saying, is this really a risk or are you just afraid? And how do we get you past that fear so you can realize your potential? I love that so much. So we're going to transition to our lightning round of questions. I'm going to ask you a question. Let me know what comes to mind. Hopefully I don't say anything too crazy. <laughs> What is the funniest memory that comes to mind when starting your career? The funniest thing that comes to mind uh, 
in starting my career is feeling like I had to be a quote unquote business person and kind of what that looked like. So I, you know, I had a very traditional briefcase and I had a, a very, very conservative suit and my granny heels. And I felt like I had to really come in and be this business person and just wasn't me at all. And now when I look back on that, I laugh because I really felt like I, I had to come in and show that I was like ready for business. <laughs> so. What is your favorite type of yoga? I know you're really into yoga. You know, um, I really practice a lot of different types and it depends on the instructor. So um, there are different flavors for different moves. So sometimes I need to de-stress. Sometimes I'm looking for a little bit more workout. So I like to mix it up. The thing I would say most about yoga is I really got to guard my time to make sure I get it in. So I put yoga break on my calendar so that my team knows that when I'm getting my yoga in, that I definitely can't be disturbed, that you know my flow is happening. What is your morning routine? I'm not one of those people that like gets up and meditates and writes in my journal and has tea, you know, to kind of like get going. I really do go to my email and I know that's terrible. That's not what I'm supposed to say. But a lot of my clients are on the East Coast and I'm in LA. So I have to like wake up and make sure none of my clients are looking for me. And then once I've done that, then I could say, okay, what do I want to accomplish today? What's my big thing? And what's my little thing that I want to get off my to-do list? What are you most proud of? I'm really proud of the fact that after having to close a company and really failing in terms of running a company that I launched another one. It is not typical necessarily, and especially to launch as a woman of color, as a sing, a solo founder, but it was what I felt like I was called to do. And I'm really proud to be here and be doing what I'm doing. How do you define resilience? Resilience manifests itself in so many different ways. So there is certainly the focus and the tenacity to get something done, but you also have to be resilient in taking care of yourself and making sure that you are investing in yourself, guarding what you give to yourself, you know, filling your own cup versus what you're giving to others. So I think that there has to be resilience in, in both of those arenas. If you could leave our listeners with one lasting piece of advice, what would that be? Follow your own unconventional wisdom. One of my favorite quotes is, go confidently in the direction of your dreams and live the life you've imagined. So please go live the life you've imagined. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Sheila. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jamie. I'm happy to do it. I'm really ecstatic about the work that you're doing and happy to be helpful in any way that I can. Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Redefining Ambition. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends. And if there's anyone you think we should have on our show, let me know. Join me next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Redefining Ambition. We'll see you all then. Take care, everyone. <laughs>